everyone, I'm Patricia Duff and welcome to The Common Good. Tonight we have an expert panel here to discuss one of our nation's most pressing issues, extremism in America today. But before we begin, I'd like to acknowledge a few honorables and some familiar faces in the audience. First, I'd like to uh, welcome our honorary advisory board members, Congresswoman Jane Harmon, out with a new book, Kay Koplovitz, Tom Rogers, Susan Del Percio, Stan Schumann and Jeffrey Rosen, the Honorable Gillian Sorensen, Amanda Burden, and Pete Granis, past hosts Fernhurst, Jill Iskell, Debbie Bancroft, Sally Menard, members of the press, current and lapsed, Judith Millard, Shirley Lord, Nancy Collins, and some VIP friends, Jack Leslie, Betty Levin, George Marcus, Jim Zirin, Marlene Hess, and our incredible Common Good members. Thank you for joining us. We look forward to having you uh, join in on our Q&A, so please raise your hands early. and. Hello, all of you, to our friends on Facebook, uh, where we're live streaming now, and our viewers on C-SPAN, where this event will be aired soon. We've got a really crucial issue to discuss and a terrific panel, so let's get right to it. Just today, Congress wrestles with whether to create a commission to determine the roots of the unprecedented attack on the U.S. Capitol on January 6th. Meanwhile, President Biden lauded members of Congress for passing legislation to better grasp the problem of hate crimes. The president spoke passionately about the rise of hatred and extremism that leads to division and violence. Most memorably, he said, silence is complicity. We couldn't agree more. We need to pay attention and speak up. We need to assert the truth because truth matters. White supremacy, ethnic hatreds, and extremism have ebbed and flowed in our country Right now, they are on the rise with powerful tools and social media platforms and the media echo chambers that can inflame with disinformation. Our panelists tonight have been paying close attention and their concerns are alarming as domestic extremism has become one of the nation's top security threats. Here to help us understand these dynamics and what we can do to address them, please welcome Michael German, he was a special agent at the FBI, specializing in domestic terror and covert operations, spending months undercover in domestic extremist groups, including white supremacist and right-wing militant groups. He is now at the Brennan Center for Justice and a highly regarded expert in terrorist group behavior, counter-terrorist operations, and white right-wing extremism. Mike, thank you so much for joining us. Oren Siegel is the Vice President of the Center on Extremism at the Anti-Defamation League. Oren has been doing critical work for most of two decades, evaluating tactics of extremist groups from across the ideological spectrum. He is highly expert on terrorism, extremism, and anti-Semitism in the media and around the world. We are especially grateful that he was willing to step in for his colleague, Jonathan Greenblatt, who is not feeling well today. Thank you so much, Oren. Robert Pape is the director of the Chicago Project on Security and Terrorism and specializes in international security at the University of Chicago, where he is a professor. Robert's very important and insightful report on the January 6th rioters has been all over the news for weeks. Bob, thank you and welcome. Finally, to lead this conversation, we have TCG Honorary Advisory Board member and former Secretary of Homeland Security, Jay Johnson. As Secretary Jay oversaw our nation's counterterrorism and security operations, and he is credited with building a more effective, cohesive Department of Homeland Security. Jay, as always, it's a thrill to have you with us. And now, Jay, over to you. Thank you very, very much, Patricia. It's a pleasure to be here. First, let me apologize for the odd juxtaposition of my beautiful backyard with this very serious topic, but I just could not sit inside in my in my man cave upstairs any longer. I had to break out a little bit. Um, so domestic violent extremism, domestic-based violent extremism is the number one terrorist threat to America. For years when I was in national security, it was Al-Qaeda, the Islamic State, foreign-inspired terrorism. And now domestic-based violent extremism is the number one terrorist threat to our homeland. So this is a very worthwhile pressing topic. We've got three panelists here to discuss it who are gonna be terrific. Um, I wanna start with Professor Pape. Before I do that, I 
I also want to acknowledge the people that Patricia acknowledged. They are good friends of mine, including but not limited to Jane Harmon, who is, in my judgment, the most energetic Washington power player I know. Uh, she is virtually everywhere. I've seen her on TV multiple times a day these days. Uh, and also Jim Zirin. I saw Jim Zirin's face in the Brady Bunch view. Uh, any discussion that includes Jim Zirin, the mean IQ goes up. And so pleased to see him as well. About two months ago, Professor Pape contacted me out of the blue. I didn't know him at all to tell me about the results of his study about the demographics of the insurrectionists from January 6th. His findings are alarming, frankly, and surprising in some respects. And so I'm very pleased that we've included him in this panel discussion. I wanna start with Professor Pate. And Bob, if you could just give us a very brief overview of what you found, because I think it's important for everyone here to hear it. Thank you very much, Jay. Um, it's a big honor to be in this panel. I know the panel is very well, and I really appreciate being able to talk in front of the audience. Um, so these points I want to make can be boiled down to three points. Mainstream, um, uh, 10 million, and the great replacement. Why do I say mainstream? Because of the over 444 who have now been arrested for breaking into Capitol Hill, 44% of them are CEOs, business owners, doctors, lawyers, accountants. Um, this is very different. This is a middle-class mainstream movement different than we've seen before from the far right, uh, certainly in the last 10 or 15 years. If we go further, only 12% are members of the Proud Boys, the Oath Keepers, or other pre-existing militant groups. 88% are not. They are in their 40s and 50s, not in their 20s. This is just not the usual suspects, mainly because they are mainstream. The next point I wanna make is 10 million. We've gone beyond looking at who was arrested to conduct nationally representative surveys with the best polling agencies in the world, that is the gold standard, um, and we identified that 4% of all American adults in March, toward the end of March, believed that the election was stolen and would willingly participate in a violent protest. That equates to 10 million people. That's a significant mobilization potential that we have to be concerned about, not just in the past, but going forward as we get into the 2022 and 2024 electoral seasons. And then third, the great replacement. The fear of the great replacement has been a fear that's been stoked by far right uh, authors, individuals, and even leaders, uh, political leaders who have uh, picked up different parts of this to manipulate the fear. And this is the fear that the rights of whites are being outpaced by the rights of minorities. This shows up in both of our studies. We see this in the Capitol Hill, January 6th, the rest study by looking at where the individuals lived. 52% of those arrested for breaking into the Capitol, 52% live in counties Biden won. That is, they're coming from Chicago, they're coming from Los Angeles, they're coming from San Francisco, Dallas, Houston, New York City. That is, this is not located in the reddest parts of America. To be sure, these are Trump supporters, but what do those counties really have that's special about them? The overwhelming predictor, the best predictor, uh, is that the county sending insurrectionists are those that have lost the most white population, meaning the more the non-Hispanic white population has declined, the much more likely that county was to send an insurrectionist to Capitol Hill. We also see the great replacement idea in our nationally representative survey because the best predictor of what puts adults into that 4%, that 10 million pool that I just described, 
is the fear of the great replacement that the rights of minorities are outpacing the rights of whites. Now, if you add all this together, this becomes quite concerning going forward. So the reason to focus on uh, who was involved in the Capitol Hill insurrection, uh, why that was serious is not to look backward, it's because we need to get, be prepared um, as we go forward. We don't have a clear crystal ball. No one can make ironclad predictions about what will happen in 2022 or 2024. What we can do, however, is do much more work, use the tools of social science to better diagnose this problem, which is a mass movement with violence at its core, so that we can develop uh, remedies, viable solutions, and above all, be better prepared as this potentially metastasizes going forward. So, Bob, your findings are consistent with what many of us know for our entire lives to be true, which is that very often the most rabid racist is the person who lives across the street who feels threatened because he sees his neighborhood evolving in a certain way. Uh, but I do want to come back just briefly to that $10 million, that 10 million number, that 10 million, 10 million people. And I think it's worth underscoring that. Just explain a little more how you get to 10 million, please, and what those 10 million reflect. Yes. So, so uh, Jake, I think you're absolutely right. Many people listening to me will say their lived experiences, they know a person. What's special about the movement now is the collective nature of the violence on January 6th. That was really, that has been really different and what we have to worry about going forward. Um, the, the, how do we get to the 10 million? Um, this is really just what polls do. So we uh, conducted a nationally representative sample where we polled a thousand Americans, where we uh, randomly select them. So this is what's called a probability sample. So we randomly select uh, a thousand Americans to be consistent and representative with uh, the demographics of American society overall. And then we ask them a series of questions. Um, and then we also um, reorder the, the questions so that we're not just priming them to get the results that we want. And the key things that resemble the January 6th insurrection are number one, a belief in the steel that the uh, presidential election in 2020 was stolen from Donald Trump. And number two, a willingness to participate in a violent protest. And we have 4% uh, of our sample that have answered yes to both of those. Um, they are heavily, heavily Republican, as you, as you might expect. Um, and, I, and that equates to then 10 million in the US population. But just to unpack that a little bit more, uh, that what I've done other polls, I've done other surveys, including of say ISIS support in the United States. It's very difficult to get people in the United States to admit at all that they have any inkling moving toward uh, ISIS or any sort of violence related to international terrorism. What's very striking and surprising for me is that that hesitancy to embrace the key uh, pillars of uh, the insurrection on January 6th, given the poll was done in March, the, the willingness of so many to embrace those key pillars, if anything, Jay, that suggests we're probably underrating or undercounting that support. And that's just very surprising for someone like me who does this kind of work, surveys and polling on extremism, um, and has for a while. So January 6th could be the tip of the iceberg. January 6th could be the tip of an iceberg. It could be that what we're seeing here now is a focal point. January 6th brought people from 44 states together to invade the Capitol to stop the transfer of power from one president to another. That's 44, that's states, that's, that's 
people who came from all across the country exchanging cell phones, now talking on WhatsApp, developing social networks. Uh, this yeah. is a very important problem that we have a difficult time tracking. It's going down in the movement now as a new Independence Day. And we have political leaders, uh, Marjorie Taylor Greene, she routinely calls it the new Independence Day. Um, this yeah. is now being lionized, it's being glorified um, as a, a positive thing. And this is in fact now gaining, our, our many politicians are gaining political support for supporting the insurrection. So we, we need to see that this is, something that we've observed in other countries, so India, Balkans, but not in the United States until now. Okay. Oren, the ADL has been tracking violent white nationalism now for years and has been sounding this alarm for years. Um, and many of us know that violent white nationalism is not new. Uh, just look at the violence that occurred during the civil rights era. But what is new is that it's more pronounced. The lid has been peeled off in a way. They feel emboldened in a way. But what is, what is it from the ADL perspective that most concerns you? Yeah, thank you, Jay and, and Patricia and everybody. Thank you for, for making the time. So if you look at the past 10 years at domestic extremism, and the ADL has been putting out an annual report every year, full 75% of extremist-related murders have been carried out by right-wing extremists. Majority of those white supremacists, anti-government types, et cetera. And so anybody who's surprised by what they saw on January 6th, frankly, just was not paying attention. This is not something that came out of the blue. And to your point, Jay, it, this is something that has been with us for a long time. But, but things have changed. And, and this is what I think the biggest concern is for, for us. You know, when you look at um, what is animating people and where are they coalescing, where are they sort of finding like-minded communities and sympathizers, people who identify with their narratives, obviously this is happening in, in a big way in, in online spaces. And so these grievances that people have um, are finding, frankly, even more of a support network than they did. You don't need to you know, go to a bar, meet somebody, maybe become a dues-paying member of a group anymore. You could find that community without leaving your parents' basement. You can create a network if you're you know, a 13-year-old in Estonia and motivate white supremacists in this country. It's just a much more fluid sort of organizing movement. And what has been the result of that? If we even just look at the year, almost exactly one year before the insurrection, there were many signs of what the impact of these online spaces have had. And to, to Professor's point, getting that gray area between the mainstream and the extreme get closer together. What I mean by that is on January in, in Virginia in 2020, there was a gun rights rally and a whole bunch of people showed up people who just you know, support that concept. But then you had these individuals who are self-identified as Boogaloo, right? A new concept at the time, wearing different patches. You had Alex Jones and conspiracy theorists show up. And you know what you also had? A whole bunch of people that had no idea about what any of these conspiracies meant. They were just there because they believed in the same narrative of grievance. We don't want our guns taken away. Maybe some of them felt we don't want our culture taken away. We could talk about the great replacement in that later. But basically, this was an online organized effort in which a lot of people came together, the extreme and the non-extreme. And it was the physical manifestation of what we are seeing in online spaces every single day. Extremists are adjacent to pundits. Extremists are adjacent to elected officials. Extremists are adjacent in these online spaces. And that creates a legitimacy to their ideas. And so you flash forward just a couple months later, a pandemic hits, and all of a sudden we have reopen protests around the country. Now, a lot of people who showed up at reopen protests were legitimately concerned about their livelihood. They didn't want to get shut down. They needed to make money. They had legitimate grievances and concerns. But what do extremists do? They never miss an opportunity to leverage a crisis. And all of a sudden we started seeing capital stormed 
by people with large guns, some of them calling themselves Boogaloo, some of them calling themselves something else, anti-government extremists, some white supremacists, and a whole new collection of conspiracy theorists who probably don't even know what they believe is a conspiracy. And so when we get to January 6th, this is the culmination of not only a year of activity that included social justice protests that really irked many of these right-wing extremists. It's a culmination of 10 years of um, the types of activities that are consistent with violent extremism being viewed as the only way to address those grievances and that agenda. But what they had was that 75% or the percentage that the professor gave of the mainstream that was there with them. So if you look at some of the interviews of people after they stormed the Capitol in the United States, and they were like, why did you do that? They weren't there because they had some anti-government agenda. Some of them did. They were there because it was completely normal to storm the Capitol in this day and age. That's the big concern that I have. And as we look forward as to what are these other animating characteristics and where are the threats coming, I will tell you that the response of the insurrection, the accountability, we, we should all welcome that. It's, it's about time. But when their voices start getting silenced on social media, when the platforms start addressing them, they're going to start thinking their voices are being taken away. It's not just their election. It's not just their guns. It's not just their culture, but their voices. And that's what concerns me. What do they do next? Let me ask you a tough question. Someone once asked me on a Sunday morning show, and I didn't know how to answer it in 90 seconds or less. Um, the question put to me was, the presidency of Barack Obama contributed to the current environment. How would you answer that? The president, in other words, the president, eight years of a black president contributed to the current environment, contributed to Charlottesville. How would you answer that? I would answer that by looking at what the extremists themselves say. And when they saw our first black president, the white supremacists were livid. But it wasn't only the fact that there was a black president in the United States. To them, it represented liberalism, diversity, multiculturalism, as seeping into their day-to-day -day lives in a very, very apparent and scary way. So for them, it reinforced this grievances that they had and frankly, gave them a target, gave them a reason to say, actually, patriotism is not supporting our president. Patriotism is fighting for what's been taken away from us. And that was the big change in some ways for some of these extremists. But I will be clear, it didn't start with President Obama. It's not going to end with President Trump. This is part of an ongoing narrative that has fueled people who are always looking to blame somebody else for the concerns that they have. Frankly, that's human nature. And that's what we have to focus on as well. Mike German, you've had a career at the FBI in counterterrorism. You even served as an undercover, uh, posing as a white extremist, white nationalist. I hope Spike Lee consulted you when he made his movie Black Klansman. Maybe he did, maybe he didn't. But could you take us inside the, the mindset that exists uh, among this strand of America, because you've seen it firsthand and up close. Sure, and, and, and thanks for inviting me. I think this is an important discussion we're having. Uh, one of the things that, that I learned very quickly was that the way that, that we often talk about white supremacy in the United States is inaccurate. And, uh, uh, you know, I was expecting a very uneducated conspiracy theorists, nihilists who just used violence to attack people they hated uh, and was surprised that every meeting I went to, even with uh, these fringe elements, the violent element of the, of the movement, uh, everybody would hand me a book, a videotape, uh, sign me up on a newsletter. It was a very literary movement and the ideologies and 
philosophies and theologies that they follow have deep roots that go back hundreds of years in our history. And in their conception of our country uh, is often more accurate than we want to believe. You know, it, uh, uh, our nation was founded as part of a white supremacist experiment, right? European colonization of the quote unquote new worlds was white supremacy. It was a white su supremacist project. Our founding documents had white supremacy baked right into them, right? Obviously, the African slave trade was based on white supremacy. Uh, and even after slavery was banned, Jim Crow was the law of the land. Our, our law enforcement officials were enforcing white supremacy. That was their job. Um, and while that history and those ideologies and theologies and philosophies had been suppressed over time, and particularly during the civil rights movement, they never went away. And were, what they believed is, is that white people in the United States believed what they believe uh, more than we want to admit that's true. And like you said, it's, you know, as an FBI undercover agent, I was focusing on the, the much smaller fringe that was engaging in the kind of deadly violence that we call terrorism and that the FBI was concerned about. Um, but the larger part of the movement was, were people who went to work every day in a suit and tie. Uh, you know, they sat on uh, in uh, uh, courtrooms as judges and lawyers and, and prosecutors. They wore badges as police officers. They were in our military because they're all part of our society. Um, and our politics has always reflected that, right? You know, the Nixon Southern strategy, the, the dog whistle racism that, that many politicians have, have utilized was always speaking to that audience in a way that my ears became attuned to through this experience working undercover with these groups. So really what has changed is that, that during the Trump administration, uh, it became much more publicly acceptable to express those views in public. Uh, that's really the difference. You know, whenever somebody talks about the rise in white supremacy in the United States, I always ask them, you know, do you think somebody who wasn't racist two weeks ago just decided, hey, this week will be a good time for me to become a racist? Or do you believe that maybe they were racist all along and just feel more confident expressing that right now? So when you have an authority figure, the president of the United States saying things that, that, uh, appear to encourage this kind of belief system, that becomes very dangerous because it makes it part of our mainstream political conversation that then people with these attitudes feel that they can participate in full throat, with a full throat. And, and at the same time, you had law enforcement backing away from these groups uh, as far as enforcing the law. So they were engaging in public violence or protest that was not being policed and began traveling around the country engaging in violence without federal law enforcement officers taking them seriously. And that's what really alarmed me uh, because that's what makes it more dangerous because now what you have is very violent people who realize they can go in public and commit violence and walk away and sometimes even high five the police officers on the way out of town. Uh, and, and that makes them much more dangerous. So, you know, we have to be careful. Part of the problem is there's, there's the data on these issues is, is very bad. And I appreciate uh, Dr. Pape's attempts to try to get an idea of what's going on here by using objective data. Um, but remember what we're measuring isn't the activity, right? There were about 10,000 people there in the broader conflict. And unfortunately, in the, in the arrests, which is what's being measured, the Justice Department initially focused on trespassers, people who merely went into the Capitol. And still, even though they've now started investigating people who engaged in violence at the Capitol and, and charging them, only a, less than a third of the people charged so far are charged with any acts of violence. So, you know, that's only 125 people and anybody who's watched those videos knows that more than 125 people were violent at those protests. And in looking at those people, those were people who, who, who we'll see had 
criminal records. They're people who have, have engaged in this public violence over time. And, and that's what's problematic is I don't think the Justice Department has really recognized this wasn't a one-time thing. This was part of a larger movement that had been gaining steam all across the country. In fact, far-right militants attacked the Oregon State Legislature, breached the doors, broke the windows, attacked police officers, attacked journalists, two weeks before they attacked the Capitol. So right. you know, this wasn't a one-off event, and it's not over. And, and if, as both the other panelists said, you know, with this great replacement theory and this idea, this promotion of themselves as victims, now that law enforcement is starting to take action, they're going to up, ramp up that rhetoric that they are actually the victims. And unfortunately, we have members of Congress who are helping them by continuing to promote the big lie and even expanding it to suggest that there was no attack on the Capitol. So there are some who, in the effort to focus on studying January 6th, respond by saying we need to study political violence generally, Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and so forth. What is your response to the efforts to draw those parallels? Uh, I think it, it, it's misguided in a lot of ways. I mean, there, there is a lot of uh, uh, selective reporting about the Black Lives Matter protests. You know, research has shown that 93% of them were completely peaceful with no arrests. So this idea that these protests- That would be me. That would, that would include me, a march right here in Montclair, New Jersey. Exactly. Okay. Right. Um, and then, you know, one of the things that the Trump administration and Attorney General Barr did was create this term Antifa that uh, truncated what the term really is, anti-fascism, right? And they tried to mislabel the protest violence as caused by this group when it really wasn't. Anti-fascism takes many forms. You could say my undercover work as an FBI agent targeting neo-Nazis was an anti-fascist action. Right? So, you know, it was a way of creating a label to cover very different things, but it basically became a label for any group that uh, was opposed to police violence and police racism and opposed to Trump policies generally. And that became Antifa. And unfortunately, law enforcement bought into that. And you know, often what we saw is uh, far-right militants coming into a community, being met by community members who wanted to counter-protest that activity, the far-right militants being allowed to engage in violence against those community members without police intervention, and then be allowed to leave town again, only for the police to come in and attack the same protesters who were protesting the far-right militants and treat them as the enemy. So as a law enforcement matter, how best should we address the issue of violent extremism within the ranks, within law enforcement, within the military, within the guard, within the reserves? What would you recommend? I would recommend on, uh, focusing on behavior. Right? I mean, the agencies and, and a lot of the discussion that leaders of these agencies uh, have focused on, you know, oh, you know, it's going to be very hard for us to scrub everybody's social media. You don't have to do that. You go down to the squad level, uh, the, the, the officers who work shoulder to shoulder with these racist officers know who they are, right? This isn't hidden. Uh, the, certainly the communities they police know who they are. They make racist, racism and discrimination complaints against them. You know, and, and again, this is sort of how our society bifurcates these issues in a way that's inappropriate, where it, 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 you know, there was allegations that members of the Capitol Police were supportive of the rioters getting into the building and there are investigations that are ongoing. And after everybody was very shocked that that might be true, uh, they then reported that, oh, black Capitol Police officers have been reporting racial discrimination in the Capitol Police for decades. And yet, you know, that is something that the agencies feel it's their job to defend against, to deny, to, to suppress those reports. 
even as they're looking for the quote unquote racist extremists, when what they should recognize is those discrimination complaints and the complaints from the community are, are warning signs that they need to pay attention to. And what they need to do first is focus on behavior. You know, we, we, here we have uh, a situation, you know, hopefully a, a sign of changing times that a police officer was held responsible for engaging in a killing of an unarmed black man in Minnesota. That officer, according to reporting, had been the, the subject of more than 20 complaints from the community. And not just that he was allowed to remain a police officer, and most of those complaints were uh, un unfounded by the police department, uh, but that he was a police trainer. He was the one training the other four officers who were at the scene. So how is it that a police department would allow somebody to engage in that kind of uh, misconduct and still train other officers, much less remain on the force? So it's a cultural shift that we're gonna have to have to address, but part of it is just accepting the obvious, right? So many times when we talk about police reform, they talk about implicit bias training. But I quote, I wrote a report on this last summer called Hidden in Plain Sight. And I quote three implicit bias trainers who say they intentionally never mention explicit racism in the police departments because they're afraid it will alienate the, their audience. Well, if you're in one of these implicit bias trainings, sitting next to a guy that you know utters racial epithets and treats the community with disdain, you're not really gonna get a lot of the implicit bias training if that isn't acknowledged. So uh, it's, it's making sure that these police officers know what the rules are, that right. the rules are very clear and right. that they're right. required to follow them. Oren, how would you answer my question? Uh, to Mike about the efforts to make to draw parallels between violent white nationalism and Antifa, Black Lives Matter, and so forth. Yeah, so this this became a, a sideshow, um, frankly, throughout 2020. Um, we saw this at in in the public rhetoric around threats, where somehow Antifa was regarded by some, including elected officials, as the number one domestic terror threat, even though nobody affiliated with Antifa killed anybody for you know, the 10 years we were looking at extremist-related murders in this country, right? It was just sort of absurd. Of the 427 murders at the time, about 427 people, uh, people were killed not by Antifa. That, that did change, I want to be clear. At the end of last year, somebody who self-identified ended up killing a right-wing extremist um, out in the Pacific Northwest. And so that was one. And so I will say this, to the degree that people feel that normalization of violence is something to be spoken out against, we should all agree with that. And to the degree that some people who identify as Antifa believe the only way to combat fascism and Nazism is to literally punch these people in the face, we ought to be able to condemn that act of violence. If for no other reason, then it only provides the extremists who they're targeting with a sense of uh, an example of why they're being victimized, right? It feeds into their victimization mentality. See, we are being shut down by these left-wing extremists. But in addition to that, um, I think the, the idea that Antifa became this huge threat was frankly part of what many of these right-wing extremists wanted. When you looked at the protests, whether it was Pacific Northwest or in New York City where I am, right? It was focused on we need to combat the radical left. And the radical left was often talked about in Antifa, but what they really meant was multiculturalism and diversity. Antifa was a convenient target because occasionally they would punch somebody in the face and throw batteries at them. Now that's not okay, but it became a convenient way for people to dismiss the violence that we have seen on the right year after year. So I see no equivalency between the two. We ought to be able to say, you know, physical confrontation is not okay. You do that, you're gonna get arrested, but we ought not fall into the trap of suggesting in any way that when you look at the domestic terror threat landscape, 
that Antifa is part of that. And I believe BLM is even less than that. It is a movement of people who want to protest. I don't know any BLM people who have stormed any capitals. All right, Patricia. Um, I know right. we have questions from the audience. Over to you. Okay, that, it, it's an incredibly important conversation. You're, although pretty darn frightening. Um, so I'm gonna, we'll start with uh, Susan Del Percio, then Warren Hogue, then Jim Zirin, and we've got a several more questions after that. So let's keep it moving. Jay, you might help decide who's gonna answer each question if, they, if the person doesn't say. Uh, go right ahead, Susan, go right ahead. Thank you for the opportunity. So a few things just stuck out. If you go by Robert's study and how many people were businessmen, members of the community, and you listen to Michael saying how public people are now announcing their, their racism, I wonder if, if that's all public, how concerned do we need to be or should we be about what's happening underneath? Like, is this what we're seeing? Is there a network? Because we know for January 6th, we had to, you know, there was some organization, maybe not, you know, an international conspiracy, but there was some. And I wonder, like, how deep do we have to go? Because if you're looking at social media, the, the FBI looked to social media to identify people who were brave and brazen enough to post their, their activity versus typically looking at social media to uncover people's activity. So how deep does this go? Uh, Robert, you want to take the first stab at that? Um, yeah, so studying political violence around the world for the last 30 years, I think it's helpful to see that what we see in public is often an upside down iceberg. That is when we see a big iceberg above the water, uh, and we normally think, well, that's just 10% of the problem and 90% is underneath. With uh, violence, uh, terrorism, it's often an upside down iceberg where you can see a lot of stuff in public you don't know what's underneath, but you. But normally it's it's a smaller portion, but it's just under the water, under the surface. And what happens is it's hard to get at because efforts to be aggressive with law enforcement and go and crack down and root that out here can all can often increase the size of that subterranean or under the surface part of the uh, of the iceberg. But what we do know from uh, if we looked at the Balkans in Europe, if we look at um, uh, places we don't like to equate ourselves with in, um, 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 in the Middle East, uh, what we see is that when we see public support for violence to this degree, this is often uh, congealing an uh, organization underneath the waterline, which will uh, raise its head here um, at some point in the near future. Patricia, I'm not tracking the questions. Why don't you go ahead? I, it sounds like can somebody Michael, else has something they want to offer. give a response? I'm sorry. Sure. Yes. Uh, I, you know, I, I think one of the things that you have to look at is, is understanding authoritarianism. And, you know, no matter what the ideology, when you look at how authoritarian regimes gain power, it looks very similar to what's going on, where, uh, you know, once you have an authority figure, saying it's okay to act this way. And, and in fact, that shows your support for me. And it sanctions a group of thugs to go out and attack the political enemies of the authoritarian and winks to the police to not enforce the law regarding that violence. Typically what you have happen is the public gets very upset about the violence and wants something done about the violence and so laws are passed that give the authoritarian much broader powers to target the civilian population. And those powers are then not used against the thugs that have been unleashed, but against other aspects of the community protesting against it. So that's what we really have to understand about what's happening here is, is that this is something that you know, is already part of our military culture, already part of our law enforcement culture, already part of the criminal justice system, right? You've seen these racial disparities in every aspect of our criminal justice system. And now they're being animated in a way that justifies using that power against the public rather than uh, just against 
people who break the law, you know, who, who gets identified as the criminals, whether it's Black Lives Matter protesters or anti-racism protesters uh, or anti-police violence protesters get labeled the criminals and the police are empowered to attack them with extra legal means along with these militants. So, you know, yeah. that's where I think we're, we're in really dangerous territory right now. Very dangerous. Okay, Warren Hogue, you're next, and then Jim Zyron, and uh, after that, Morley Klausner and Kate Koplovitz. Uh, <clears throat> Patricia, I have a, a question probably for Michael German also, and that is, um, uh, are there cases where sympathy for right-wing views among law enforcement people have actually impeded investigation of far-right extremism? I have in mind the numbers of people uh, arrested for January 6th offenses who come from military and law enforcement backgrounds. Uh, right, and actual active duty military and law enforcement, uh, as well as elected representatives from around the country and state government. So, you know, again, this permeates every aspect of our society. Um, uh, but you're, you're correct that, that this is a big part of of where we are, and and it's not it's not accidental. And we have to understand how it happened, right? Right after 9/11, obviously the country was shocked, and and we were going to war, uh, and police were trained looking for anybody to train on counterterrorism and bringing in people who were training overtly anti-Muslim, Islamophobic, anti-Arab materials, and that permeated the FBI, the Department of Defense, and so our law enforcement and military people were being trained to view all Muslims as suspicious, including Muslims Americans, and started dividing up our country. At the same time, there was a, 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 a nativist anti-immigration policy being focused on our southern border. And that's where you saw militias, these far-right militias, repackage themselves as border militias and instead of working against the, the government, you know, they're not anti-government militias anymore, they're border militias working with the border patrol and fusing those elements. So, you know, a lot of uh, people who would never put on a Klan hood and would never even consider themselves racist, but, you know, feel more comfortable living in a community where people look like them and are from the same socioeconomic background, you know, don't want their kids to go to a school that's too diverse because there's problems in that school. They'd rather send them to a private school. You know, those kind of attitudes are reflecting that underlying part of white supremacy that still infects our society. Okay. Um, Jim Zyron. Jim, do you have a question? He may be looking for uh, how to unmute. I'm unmuted. I'm unmuted. There you, you go. There you me. go. Okay. First, thanks to Jay Johnson for that incredible shout out, and um, very generous, and um, very grateful for it. Uh, my um, question, I guess, is directed to Michael, um, and I wondered, you know, we are trained, those of us uh, who are lawyers. Uh, to uh, investigate the facts. And uh, we really, in order to ferret out uh, international terrorism as well as domestic terrorism, we have to know the facts and we rely on the FBI uh, really to get us the facts so we can act and decide what to do. Now, uh, are there different considerations guiding the FBI internally uh, maybe paralleling the First Amendment in international terrorism or domestic terrorism as to uh, whether you can go into a mosque, uh, send an agent into a mosque undercover and say, uh, hey, uh, do you know anyone who wants to blow up uh, the Pentagon? Uh, or whether you can infiltrate uh, some uh, um, far-right organization, um, which uh, certainly the, the learning of uh, Professor Cynthia uh, Miller Idris says uh, uh, the uh, far right has infiltrated the mainstream. So maybe uh, you go to Mississippi or Florida and infiltrate a, uh, a meeting of the local Republican club. 
and say, is anyone thinking of storming the Capitol? Uh, uh, and aren't there inhibitions on the FBI in conducting investigations of that sort? And how do you distinguish uh, between uh, legitimate political opinion, uh, however marginal, uh, however fringe, uh, and uh, the types of, uh, of expressions that uh, uh, might imminently lead to violence? Uh, thank you very much for that question. I think it's very important, and, and this has uh, been the, the bane of my existence since I did this work. It, it shouldn't be that difficult. The, the rules at the FBI, the Attorney General's guidelines, required me to have a reasonable indication of criminal activity before I could talk to somebody. I had to sit down with a piece of paper and explain what evidence existed that justified my belief that they were not expressing ideas that I found abhorrent, but actually violating a specific federal law, right? And that discipline helped me keep those cases uh, uh, focused on people who were doing harm, helped me solve bombings, helped me stop people who were uh, trafficking in illegal weapons. So it, it's not that hard. The problem is when you give law enforcement agencies an intelligence function, they believe their job is to predict crimes and violence that hasn't happened. And that's where the bias seeps in. And that's why you saw uh, early after 9-11 in the domestic context, the FBI said eco-terrorism was the number one domestic terrorism threat, even though there's not a single homicide related to environmental activism in the United States, because it was that political bias. You know, that's why you see the focus on Antifa and Black Lives Matter, because they're pro protesting police policies, right? So they're the enemy, and there isn't an objective count, and, and the FBI doesn't provide that information. In the National Defense Authorization Act of 2020 demanded that information. It was supposed to be published in June of 2020. Last Friday at five o'clock, the FBI put, it, put the report on their website and they didn't include that data and claimed that they don't have a way to extract that data to show whether they're using their domestic terrorism resource to target environmentalists versus white supremacists and, and far-right militants who actually kill somebody. You know, in the context of white supremacist and far-right militant violence, they are actually engaging in violence. You don't have to go to the social media. Uh, you can turn on your television set and watch the violence that they perpetrated. So this idea that, that there's some you know, search that you have to go out for is just like with the racists in law enforcement. No, this is happening in plain sight. There are victims. For instance, we talk about hate crimes in the United States and every year the FBI publishes data that we talk about whether hate crimes are rising or falling. But what people don't recognize, only 14% of police agencies acknowledge that hate crimes occur within their jurisdictions. So we're talking about these national numbers as if this is somehow indicative of something when 86% of police departments aren't reporting any hate crimes, right? So it, it's this false sense of what the data is and, and the FBI has resisted. The FBI today can't tell you how many people white supremacists killed last year or the year before that, or the year before that. So all the times we're talking about rises and falls, it's when private organizations like uh, Orrin and, and, and the uh, Anti-Defamation League are trying to gather that information on their own, but they're often dependent on the police agencies acknowledging that these crimes are committed by people they know to be white supremacists and often they don't. We've got, uh, Orrin Siegel wants to respond as well, but thanks for that, Michael. Yeah, I'll just be very quick. You know, as an organization and, and as a team uh, that actually looks on social media for potential threats all the time, and we share information when, you know, if somebody meets the criteria of going to do something bad to some community, we share that. I will tell you that it's not everybody who's going to, who's saying, I am going to do A, B, and C, that is the threat. Obviously, some of that is behind the scenes. You need to be in certain spaces to see that, and you rely on law enforcement right, to make sure that they're treating that seriously. So like my subway say, says every day, when you see something, say something, and we do that in terms of letting them know. But I will say, when you are undermining democratic institutions, it's completely protected speech. The conspiracy theories of QAnon and others that motivate people to action 
is often not criminal. Now, we ought to know where that is growing, how that is impacting people. That will give you a sense of where the next threats might be. But I think the biggest challenge is, in America, you can be as hateful as you want. There are consequences to that, of course. But we're not going to tell people to not say the things that they want to say in order to keep our community safe. So we have to come up with other strategies. And we have to make it as sexy for people to combat and have other narratives than those that are trying to undermine our democratic institutions. In other words, we're not going to arrest our way out of this issue. This is a whole of society approach that requires a whole bunch of people to try to win hearts and minds and not just get them arrested. Well, how would you do that, Oren? Oh, well, how much time do we have? No, I'll be, I'll be, I'll be super <laughs> quick. Um, I mean, again, I, I do think that I'll focus on one just to be respectful of time. I think we need to train people at a young age to be critical thinkers, critical consumers of information. I mean, there is so much being thrown at people in these online spaces. I always joke that my investigators who are looking for extremists are on the same platforms as my 10-year-old kid, right? That's sort of the nature of extremism today. So early on, we have to tell them, how do you assess who is trying to manipulate you? Who is trying to recruit you? Who is trying to reach you? What are the narratives? And frankly, that has to start at a young age where you're also teaching people how to be allies for others, whether it's because they're being bullied or because they are being targeted in other ways. So that may sound super simple and maybe a little sort of naive, but frankly, we need to start educating people at a younger age so that there's resiliency by the time the actual extremists and those conspiracies are surrounding them. Okay, good point. Um, Kay Koplovitz, uh, Morley Klausner, um, Jeffrey Rosen, and we've got a lot of questions behind that, so let's see if we can move through them. Well, actually, the uh, discussion we just had was along the lines of the question I was really going to pose about uh, the militant next door. Uh, what do we do in our communities? We're talking about crimes committed or potential crimes committed and um, you know, against the Capitol and other places uh, by militants and law enforcement, what are they doing about it? But it seems to me with what we heard earlier on social, about social media and the confluence of militant groups and so forth, this has spread so pervasively across the community and maybe at a very young age, but what do we do about the militant next door? How do we know who that law enforcement person is, or that teacher is, or the neighbor that just lives over the backyard fence. What do we do as citizens? I mean, it's, it's just something that just the police can't take on, or just our military can't take on. I don't think it seems so much more pervasive than that. Oh. So do you have any advice for those I, of us? Sure, I, I, would, I would just start by saying it's really important to create friction for those who are trying to um, reach, recruit, and radicalize others, right? Ideas are often shared elsewhere. So your neighbor might be reading it, but that idea may be created somewhere else. How do we create that friction that makes some of these undemocratic ideas have at least an alternative, right? And so again, I, I go back to education. I also go back to accountability. I don't think it's unreasonable for people to expect these social media companies who are making billions of dollars make it a little bit more difficult for your average person to be harassed or threatened or join a QAnon or Oath Keeper group. Little things like that hopefully will help, will create that friction. Uh, Morley, do you have a quick question? And then we'll go to Jeffrey Rosen. Yes. Um, it appears that the January uh, 6th commission is not going to happen because of the Republicans' uh, filibuster. And I think we all know that we need um, a set of facts for a record of history. And this morning on Morning Joe, I thought he had a really good idea that there would be a select committee in the House where it would start with like uh, Adam Kisslinger and Liz Cheney and the rest of the Republicans would be former Republican uh, officials or attorneys general and the same on the 
democratic side. And I just wondered to Jay um, what you thought about that idea because it doesn't look like a normal thing's gonna happen. I think a bipartisan group with subpoena power needs to look in this. There have been a bunch of hearings already, but there's no one cohesive, comprehensive study. It has to be examined one way or another without the partisan back and forth about the scope of it and, and so forth. So I, I, I agree with you. If we can't get this done by legislation, the speaker has the ability to appoint a select committee. And do you like the, the idea that they bring in outside former Republican officials or attorney general to be on that commission? I mean, that if, we have, if we have to, yes. Okay. Okay. Um, Jeffrey Rose, we've got just a little bit more time. In that case, I'll try and make it quick, except uh, I'll begin by congratulating Jay and his garden. It's superb <laughs> background. Thank you. Um, my general question is, what do you do? If you look at this, it's difficult for me to take this out of the context of uh, a long-term trend of polarization that's been happening socially and politically in this country. It's difficult for me to take this out of the context of, and I don't mean to equate it, but some of the um, violence that's occurred on the left in some of the demonstrations, some of the activity you see in towns like Portland, some of the defund the police movements, some of the wokeism that's entered into the education system that might be counterproductive to what Warren thinks is necessary in the education system. Uh, and when I look at it, uh, you can actually become pretty concerned that we're in the midst of an inexorable trend that's going to be very difficult to arrest. So with that as background, and people can challenge what I said, obviously, what do you do about it? Well, and it's not just small things. What do you do on a broader scale that makes things at least a more manageable series of problems? Uh, Patricia, could I come in? Yes, please. So Jump. I think we could take a lesson Jump from in. COVID. I think we can take a lesson from COVID. Um, what we need more than anything else right now is second stage diagnostics. Um, what we are at a stage right now where we've just learned with political violence on the far right, that this is probably 10 times bigger than we thought it was. That is, it's 10 times more, the COVID is 10 times more deadly than the flu. That's stage one. That's what I'm telling you in my studies. It's probably 10 times bigger than we thought before these studies. Next stage is to understand what are vulnerable populations. How do we do that? more testing of the kinds of tools that I'm showing you with nationally representative samples, but they can't be directed toward horse races on who's gonna win elections or focusing just on hate speech. It has to be about violence because what we're studying here and what we're seeing in front of us is a mass movement with violence at its core. This is uh, what's really in its collective violence at its core. And so I really believe that over the next four to six months, if we could invest more in, I would call this second stage diagnostics or the equivalent of testing that we did with COVID, we'll be much better off. And if we fail to test just in this situation, just like with COVID, we'll be flying blind. We have tools, but these are tools we need to really bring to bear in a major way. Uh, they're not just, you know, $500 weekend tools. This is uh, just like COVID. We need to make this a major priority. And I believe we have the social, um, that we have the tools to get at some of the social and political issues there. Okay, Jay. I'd like to offer a closing comment, if I could, Patricia. Okay. Hatred does not discriminate. Hatred of the type we've been talking about does not discriminate between and among groups. We face a common enemy. And I think this discussion amplifies that the problem we're discussing today is not a black problem. It's not a Jewish problem. It's not an LDF problem. It's not an ADL problem. It's not a Republican problem. It's not a Democratic problem. It's an American problem. And the strand of 
domestic violent extremism that we face threatens to undermine our entire democracy. There has to be a national imperative to address it. So Patricia, thanks for putting this discussion together. Oh, thank you. What an outstanding panel. Thank you, Jay, for, for all of your um, leadership on this. And thank you, Bob and Mike and um, Oren. I hope we can have you back because I think this is going to be an ongoing discussion, unfortunately, it's something we're going to have to deal with. So thank you all. Um, I just want to let you know that we do have some important conversations coming up. Next week, we're going to be talking about voting rights in American democracy. We're in the process of scheduling a very timely discussion uh, in coming days on Hamas. Gaza and beyond with uh, a former director of the Mossad, Ephraim Alevi and Richard Solomon. That'll be fascinating. And then later in June, we have exciting rising leaders to meet Alyssa Slotkin and Katie Porter, among many other things. So thank you so much, everybody. Um, hope to see you next week. <laughs>